Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. It's science, but not as you know it. The Naked Scientists. Hello, welcome to this week's edition of The Naked Scientist, which has a watery theme this week because we are taking to the River Cam. Cambridge is sited on the River Cam and it flows right through the heart of the city and that means it also goes straight past a lot of the colleges that are some of the oldest and most important parts of the university. So, to take us on our ride down the river, let's meet the person who's going to be our guide. Hi, Sarah. Hiya. This is Sarah Caster-Perry. So, you're from Cambridge? Yeah, I was a student here. Okay, so what are you going to be showing us? Um, I'm going to be taking you down what is known as the Backs, which is the bit of the river that goes past all the old colleges, such as Queen's and Clare and King's, all the big ones that the tourists come to see. And we'll, on our journey down the river, be meeting some of the fellows. In fact, we're going to be getting them as passengers in our boat ride down the river. And fellows are dons of Cambridge colleges, so they do research and they also do teaching. So we'll be asking them about what they're working on. So, Sarah, where's the craft that we're going to be going in? Well, the boat here is the punt. It's a flat-bottomed boat. It's made of wood just by the mill pond, which is just by Queen's College. And it's traditionally been used since the 19th century for carrying cargo and fishing and things. But actually, it's quite common now to see it in Oxford and Cambridge for pleasure trips. You mean we're getting in that? (laughs) Yes. They do say it is impossible to sink a punt, but I do have friends who have sunk them before. But I'll try not to sink you. You're not filling me with encouragement. Where's the engine? It's, It's punted by a pole. You push the pole in and lever yourself along the bottom through the water Um, and where do you go and pump from i stand on the bit at the very end which is a big flat bit known as the till you want me to get some of cambridge's finest mines into that (laughs) i promise i won't sink it okay right well let's take it away yeah let's get in if you get in first and then i'll go along and i'll punt us off well i think probably the best way i can describe this is a bit like an oversized canoe that someone has forgotten to put the top on uh, this is about 20 feet long. It's about wide enough for two people to sit side by side at various points along the length. And there are cushions made from sort of canvas that sit on the bottom of the punt, which we then sit on. And at the back is a raised flat deck area, which I presume is where Sarah is going to stand to push us along. Where are we going first? We're going to be going to Queen's College first. It's pretty busy on the river, Sarah. Yeah, well, it it usually is in summer, and also on weekends it's particularly busy. And the backs is worse because this is where a lot of the inexperienced punters tend to go. So when it's busy, like it is at the moment, you get a lot of crashing punts and lost poles. Where are we now? Right, well, we're just about to go under Mathematical Bridge, which spans the river between the new and old bits of Queen's. And it's the only wooden bridge on the cam, as you can see. 
and it's held together by metal bolts between the bits of wood. Now, there's a bit of a legend about this bridge, which quite a lot of the punters tend to tell the tourists, which is that it was originally built by Newton without any bolts at all, and that the bits of wood, because he designed it so perfectly, just held together without any bolts, and the students took it apart to see how that worked, but then couldn't put it back together again. The engineering department couldn't do it, so they had to rebuild it with bolts in it. But this, sadly, is not true. Why not? Because actually the bridge was first built 22 years after Newton was already dead. <laughs> it was rebuilt twice in Queen's history, but it's always had metal bolts in it. Anything else special about Queen's? It's one of the only two colleges in Cambridge which has buildings on either side of the river on its main site. The other one is St John's. And it also has the oldest building on the river, which was built in the 15th century. And what's its history? Well, it was founded in 1448 by Margaret of Anjou, who was married to King Henry VI. And then it was refounded in 1456 by the wife of King Edward IV, hence its name, Queen's. All right, so it's all logical. Was it always a university college? Was there always education going on here then? Yes, it was founded originally as an educational college, as opposed to quite a lot of the other colleges, which were originally monasteries. Magdalen and Sydney Sussex both started off as monasteries that were then converted for education. Well, we'd better pick up our first passenger here from Queen's, and that is from Plant Sciences, Beverly Glover. Welcome, Beverly. Hi, Chris. Now, I'm sorry, I know I promised you a ride down the River Cam, a boat ride or a cruise or something, and this is the best <laughs> we could do. It's a low-budget show. <laughs> it's all right. We're quite used to it in Cambridge. Now, you're from Plant Sciences. What are you devoting most of your time to at the moment? Well, most of our work at the moment is about the surface of the flower, particularly the surface of the petals, and how different structures on those surfaces affect the way the flower interacts with the animals that, that collect its pollen and pollinate it. So how do flowers actually work? Well, the flower is basically um, a bright advertising thing that says to animals, there's something good to eat over here. The animal comes along looking for the, the reward, the good thing to eat, which is usually nectar, and in doing so picks up a bit of the plant's pollen and transfers it then to another flower, and that way the plants get fertilised and make seed. But what about in terms of how the flower mechanically works? And, and if you zoom in with a microscope and look at it in more detail, what, what's actually there? Well, different flowers have different surface structures depending on what they're trying to attract. So different animals have different preferences. And so one thing we've been looking at is whether some flowers have cell structures that give grip to animals so that if they're trying to land perhaps in high wind or at difficult angles they have something to get a grip on. Another thing we've been looking at is much smaller surface structures on the nanometer scale which affect the way light's reflected and refracted and can give you iridescence on the flower. So this will presumably mean that different animals or different insects can differentially see the flower and it's therefore more attractive to certain species than others? Yes exactly so one thing that plants can do with structure is make sure they reflect very highly in the ultraviolet end of the spectrum which we can't see but many insects can and so that makes the flower look much brighter to an insect than it would to us and makes it very attractive to them. Why do you think insects want to see in the UV? Where do they get that trait from? Not all insects have the same colour vision but bees, which is what we mostly work with, have three photoreceptors like we do but whereas we see the primary colours, they see ultraviolet, blue and green and so the world looks very different to them and flowers are adapted to how they want to look, not how we want them to look. Is it anything to do with the fact that on a cloudy day UV can still come through and other light wavelengths may not? It may well be. There is quite a lot of evidence that pollinator colour vision, or bee colour vision at least, evolved before flowers evolved. And so it's as if the flowers have had to suit their colours to what the animals already had. It's not the other way around. The animals weren't going, oh, OK, flowers are red, so I need to see red. They started off with colour vision that worked for them, and then flowers have adapted to suit. 
So why would they need colour vision if there was no flower around for them to pollinate? Well, that's a good question. One possibility, of course, is to see one another. So a lot of insects are shiny in the ultraviolet or iridescent, and that helps them attract mates or select mates or identify enemies and so on. So colour vision is important for seeing one another too. But going back to the, the petals for a second, so those cells you're looking at that give grip, do they, is that just all they do, that they're sort of sticky to certain insects, or do they have other jobs? No, that's not all they do, so I wish it was that simple. Um, They also change the way the flower looks because they act as little lenses that focus light into the flower and make it look brighter, so we can see that effect. Um, And animals can see it too, insects can see it too, but it may not be very important to them, so they can see it, but they don't really care. Um, They may also make the flower warmer by trapping heat, so when they trap light, they trap um, energy, and so they make the flower slightly warmer. And that, to some pollinators in some environments, may be the most significant factor. A warmer flower means that you don't have to spend as much energy warming yourself up to be able to fly. Because you had a paper in Nature actually exploring that, didn't you, a couple of years ago? Yes, that's right. We showed that even a perfectly normal bumblebee ambient temperature would prefer a warmer flower to a cooler one, given a choice, if the reward's the same in both. I think the difference these cells can make to how warm the flower is isn't very great for a flower on a sunny day in a, in a normal habitat. But to pollinators that are foraging perhaps at dawn when the flowers are still quite cold, they might make enough of a difference to be significant. Why does it make a difference? Why, why does an insect want to drink warm nectar? Because it doesn't have to spend any energy warming it up itself. So bees have to spend some energy warming their bodies up just to be able to fly. If It's like you're having a hot drink. If the nectar comes in warmer, then you don't have to spend as much energy warming it up. And do all plants have these cells, or is it just the, the sort of preserve of, of ones that want to specifically attract certain insects? About 80% of flowering plants have these cells, and we think that some are doing it for tactile reasons to give the animal a grip, some are doing it for warmth reasons, some might be doing it because of the effect it has on how the flower looks. It seems to be an ancestral trait, so flowers seem to have had it from when there were first flowers, and the plants that don't have it seem to have lost it, and that's actually something that we're quite interested in, is exploring those plants and why they've lost something that seems to be so useful. And plants that don't rely on insects to get pollinated, do they not have them? Well, most wind-pollinated plants have lost petals entirely, so they, they don't have these structures which are only on the petals. And sort of looking beyond that, where do you think this is going to go next? Because there must presumably be mutant flowers that don't have these cells, and are they less fit? Do they grow less well? Yes, so we have a mutant line of snapdragon, Antirhinum magus, and also a mutant line of petunia that don't make these cells. And although they're perfectly fit and grow perfectly well in the greenhouse, if we plant them out in the field, we find that they don't set as much seed, they don't get pollinated as well, they're not as attractive to bees. So those mutants have let us identify the genes that control this process, and we can start to understand then in the plants that have deliberately, in inverted commas, lost them, the, the flowers that never have them, what's happened to those genes and where they've gone and why they're not working anymore. So does this mean that if you gave plants more genes or expressed them more so they made more of these cells, you could make them more fertile, more fit, and you'd get better yields off of them? It would depend on the plant, but that's certainly something we're thinking about. So, for instance, a lot of members of the tomato family have lost these cells because the way the flower is pollinated... The animals that are attracted to it don't need them, either for grip or for the vision. But tomato itself hasn't lost them. So one thing we're interested in exploring at the moment is if we knock those genes out in tomato, can we make it actually more attractive to pollinators and set more fruit? Because they're buzz pollinators, aren't they? In Australia, they have to import bumblebees that can buzz at the right frequency to make the pollen come out. Yeah, exactly. So they're actually attracted to the anthers, the bright yellow things that produce the pollen. That's what they're trying to collect, pollen to feed to their larvae, not nectar out of... Uh, petals. So the petals, if you like, have become irrelevant, and so we think that for most buzz-pollinated species, these cells have been lost because you're not trying to make the petals stand out. But tomato, for some reason, hasn't lost them, so that's something we'd like to explore.
And just lastly, Beverly, with a name like Beverly Glover, working on plant sciences, are you not, or have you never been tempted to add the word fox in the middle so you could be a plant scientist being called Beverly Fox Glover? You know, it's funny, my husband makes that joke all the time as well. <laughs> Thank you very much, Beverly. Thank you for joining us on our punt today. That's all right. Uh, if you want to walk back to Queen's, it's that way down the bank. OK, perfect. Beverly Glover from Plant Sciences at Cambridge University talking about conical cells and how they can warm up plants and make the petals much more attractive to insects and therefore they might want to pollinate them. The Naked Scientist podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider, on the web at ukfast.net. This is The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and we're punting our way down the River Cam this week with a look at some of the great and the good research that's going on here in Cambridge because the River Cam backs onto a lot of the Cambridge colleges, so we're picking up passengers in the form of researchers at the university. Right, where are we now, Sarah? Where have we ditched Beverly? Well, this is King's College, and on the right you can see the huge King's Chapel, which is one of the most famous landmarks in Cambridge. It was started in 1441 by Henry VI, but then in 1455 the War of the Roses started, which basically took up all the King's funds because he had to go and pay for the army, and so it actually wasn't finished until Henry VIII came along and it finished it in 1544. And you can actually see on the chapel that one side was finished much earlier than the other because about 10 feet up off the ground on one of the sides you can see the colour of the stone changes because it was actually completed several years after it was started. So what else is King's famous for? Well, it's famous for it being originally set up for just boys from Eton School, so that's quite an exclusive little club, and they only started letting in non-Eton boys in 1865. And what about, dare I say, in Cambridge, women? Well, they were let in considerably later in the 20th century, but they're not quite as old-fashioned as Maudlin, who didn't let them in until the 1970s. Thank you very much, Sarah. Right, OK, well, here's our next passenger waiting on the banks of the cam to join us in our punt, and he's going to tell us about some novel and clever ideas in how we sequester carbon and therefore offset our carbon footprint, and that's Professor Herbert Huppert. Herbert, welcome to our punt. Welcome aboard. Thank you very much. It's a little rocky, but it's fun sitting here. <laughs> so, tell us, this carbon business, we'd like to think that weather like this isn't just the result of global warming. What can we do to try and offset the carbon that we're pumping out to the atmosphere? Well, you know, we're pumping out something like 27 billion tonnes of carbon dioxide every year into the atmosphere. It's been rising steadily since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. And at the same time, the global average temperature has been rising. And we're very concerned that it may be mankind putting this carbon dioxide into the atmosphere that not only is warming uh, the atmosphere but is leading to terrible natural situations like uh, Katrina and uh, the droughts in Australia and the uh, great heat in 2003 that killed so many people in Europe. So we'd like to see how we can either put less carbon dioxide into the atmosphere because we use less energy by burning less fossil fuels or by storing it in the large reservoirs, porous reservoirs beneath the surface of the earth. Some people say though that the reason that you see a rise in CO2 with a rise in temperature is that water doesn't absorb as much CO2 when it's warmer. So if you warm the world up then CO2 comes out and goes in the air. What is clear is that there is a good chance that because of the increased carbon dioxide that we're putting into the atmosphere, the temperature is rising because of that. 
What sort of strategies are there to try to get the carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and also to prevent us putting so much there in the first place? We could just be much more efficient in our energy use. We don't need really to uh, warm our houses as much as we uh, do. We don't need uh, to drive individually uh, around the uh, country. We could have two or three at a time coming into uh, work. So there's no doubt that we could reduce the amount of energy that we use and be just as uh, comfortable and just as happy. Now, as to actually what we would do with the carbon dioxide, there are lots of uh, suggestions, but the one that is most likely to uh, work is to store the carbon dioxide for at least 10,000 years in these porous reservoirs that are at the moment full of salty water. But there are other suggestions for reservoirs, such as uh, coal seams, brown coal seams that are not attractive as far as uh, mining them is concerned from a financial point of view. They also are very porous, and we could put it in there. Or depleted oil reservoirs, not as much storage space there available to us, but that's another possibility. So so what are the actual mechanics of getting the CO2 there in the first place? The point is that normal carbon dioxide, as we know it, is a gas, and a gas takes up a relatively large amount of space compared to a liquid, something like a thousand times more. And we can compress the gas into a liquid by taking it down to a minimum of 800 metres, but better somewhere between one kilometre and two uh, kilometres. So you have to pump it down one kilometre, let's say, uh, anomaly, where it becomes supercritical uh, gas, as it's called. It's like a liquid. It has a density that close to water, about three-quarters that of uh, water, and then it flows out into these pores in the rock, really just like oil has been formed in pores. How do you keep it there? The idea is that there will either be some totally impermeable seal, just as oil is sealed in reservoirs, even though it's been made hundreds of thousands of years ago. The other possibility which has been looked at, but only really from a theoretical point of view, is to somehow play some game with the density so that the density of the liquid-like carbon dioxide is larger than that of the surrounding liquid and hence gets trapped. That's a very dangerous business, it seems to me, because something could always go wrong and it gets somehow rather less dense and then it would come to the surface by itself. There are some researchers in America who are looking at the possibility of putting the CO2 into water in the ground where it forms a dilute acid and then reacts with carbonates in the rock and you end up with the CO2 becoming almost like limestone. So it's it's sequestered as a rock. The question is how much energy is needed to do that, in a sense energy to make the chemical transfers. My understanding is the energy is really quite uh, considerable and also the process is very, very slow. The thing we have to uh, realise is that we are putting in an enormous amount of carbon dioxide, 27 billion tonnes a year. The biggest uh, field projects at the moment have been sequestering something like a million tonnes every year. So we need something like 100,000 such field stations. We're a long way from getting there. And also, where we're producing the CO2 isn't necessarily where we'd want to sequester it. So we have the other problem, I presume, of of getting it to where we want to store it. We're not going to transport it far. And my belief is that we'll try to do something with it where it's formed. That's an important point because there's virtually no work done at all anywhere over the former Soviet Union, over South uh, America 
almost all of the southern part of uh, Africa, yet they uh, produce a considerable amount of carbon dioxide. And at the moment, no thought whatsoever has been given to where you might sequester their carbon dioxide. Well, you mentioned parts of the former Soviet Union. Of course, a lot of that stuff is in what was permafrost, which is now melting and organic matter is getting into water and very quickly getting digested and turning into methane and CO2. So I suppose there's that to take into account as well. Yeah, that is a recent uh, interest, and people don't quite know exactly how much methane there will be and uh, what uh, the potential problems will be there. But that is something that I think we need to look at uh, very carefully as the earth warms up and, as you uh, say, much more methane can come out into uh, the atmosphere and this would not be direct uh, anthropogenic uh, input of methane but it is a consequence of anthropogenic uh, effects. Are you worried? No, I'm never worried. Yes, the uh, temperature may go up a little bit and yes, we may have uh, a number of natural catastrophes but I'm sure we'll see our way uh, around. But the safest thing to do is to try and get yourself safely out of our pun. Thank you very much, Urban. Thank you very much for coming along. So thank you very much to Professor Herbert Huppert from Cambridge University who was talking about new ways that we can use to sequester carbon. Laying the facts bare, the Naked Scientists. Welcome back to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith. This week we're exploring Cambridge by water because we're punting our way down the River Cam and exploring some of the colleges that are on the banks of the river. The person doing the hard work is Sarah Castor-Perry and she's telling us a bit about the history of each of the places we visit as we take on passengers. These are the fellows who do research and teaching at these Cambridge colleges. So Sarah, where have we got to now? Um, This is Clare College, which is actually the second oldest college in Cambridge after Peterhouse. You wouldn't think so looking from the backs because the buildings along the river were actually built in the 17th and 18th century so a lot of people think it's actually younger but it's not. And what's Clare famous for? Well, one of the things Clare College is most famous for is its bridge, Clare Bridge, which is the oldest surviving bridge over the Cam. It's got 14 stone balls along the top, 13 complete balls and one slightly misshapen ball because it's got a slice missing. It looks a bit like a cheese. And uh, one of the sort of stories about this is that when the stonemason built the bridge, Claire didn't pay him as much money as he wanted. So to spite them, he cut out a chunk of one of the balls on the bridge and took it away to even up his payment. He could have done something more dramatic, like actually take away half the bridge, which would actually have made a difference. Well, yeah, that would have made more sense. And actually, the story is probably not true because... When the balls erode, they're held to the bridge by metal rods and when they get old, they sort of start to get a bit loose. And the way to repair them is to cut out a chunk at the bottom, then twist them round and put them up on their other side and then fill in the chunk that you've cut out with another piece of stone, which presumably, over time, somehow fell out and is somewhere in the river um, and they haven't replaced it, which comes up with a great story, but I think that's probably more what happened. And anything else we should know about, Claire? Well, one of their most illustrious fellows is David Attenborough, the great naturalist. So everyone's very proud of that at Clare. Well, quite a hard act to follow, but I think we may have a close contender with our next passenger, and that is from Clare College and the Department of Psychiatry, Paul Fletcher. Hi, Paul. Hi. Welcome to our pun. I'm sorry that this is the best we could do. It's a low-budget programme. This is absolutely beautiful, don't worry. What is it you work on? I'm especially interested in schizophrenia, and in particular the key symptoms of schizophrenia, which are delusions and hallucinations. What do they actually mean? Well, they both relate to 
a very changed experience of the world. A hallucination is when you hear something or see something that isn't really there. And a delusion is when you believe something that is really quite extraordinary and probably untrue. So, for example, a hallucination, somebody might hear somebody talking to them, criticising them. A delusion, they might come to believe that their neighbours are trying to poison them or to control their actions. So do people develop these kind of delusions to explain the funny hallucinations they're experiencing then? Some people think that the experiences are abnormal and the explanation is a perfectly logical one for those experiences. Other people think that the experiences themselves are not abnormal, but people just reason in very different ways. Other people think it's a bit of both. What's actually going on in the brain of someone who's having, say, a hallucination or producing delusions like this? Well, we know that people with delusions and hallucinations and other symptoms of schizophrenia have changes in the neurotransmitter dopamine. We know that it seems to be overactive, although it's not entirely clear whether it's the receptors that are oversensitive or there's too much of the the chemical. But we know that there are clues that this might be one of the prime suspects. The real thing that we don't know is how that something as basic and low-level as that can translate into something as complex and human and social as a belief that somebody's trying to harm you. It's interesting because schizophrenia is quite genetic. We know it runs in families, but it also tends to come on much later in life, even though presumably the genes that cause it are active from the time that you're conceived, effectively. You don't get the disease until you're, what, mid-20s, in some cases a bit later, in some cases in your 70s. So what do you think's going on in the brain to suddenly make this come out when we're that bit older? The mere fact that it doesn't tend to manifest in childhood, although it can, is probably giving us some vital clues about what the key problem is. I mean, one possibility is that... Schizophrenia arises once the brain has fully matured and it's only at the time that somebody has matured pathways in their brain that they're able to experience and express the sorts of symptoms that that people with schizophrenia have. Another possibility actually is that schizophrenia is present if you scrutinise closely at an earlier age and that in children it manifests in much more simplistic, if you like, ways, motor abnormalities, speech abnormalities. What about the association with various drugs? Because cannabis has been linked to people getting psychotic symptoms, if not overt schizophrenia, hasn't it? A lot of people are pushing very hard to uh, apply ever greater constraints on the use of cannabis because they believe strongly that it causes psychosis. In actual fact, if you look at the evidence, we still don't know whether people use cannabis because they've got schizophrenia or they've got schizophrenia because they use cannabis. One thing we do know is that the proportion of people using things like cannabis is much greater among people who are mentally ill. It's certainly the case that that sort of disruption of a a brain that's already vulnerable could precipitate an episode of these unpleasant symptoms. If you look at the brains of people who have schizophrenia, either with a brain scan or or in post-mortem, if you look at whole brains, do you see any obvious differences with what we would call someone who's normal? Up until the 70s, people gave an unequivocal no to that. And then in the mid-70s, somebody called Eve Johnson in Northwick Park uh, produced a groundbreaking paper which essentially showed that the ventricles, which are the um, fluid-filled spaces in the brain, tend to be larger in people with schizophrenia. And this suggests that there's been some degree of shrinkage of the brain. Most psychiatrists would accept that the brain is different in structure, and there's increasing evidence that it is different in the way it functions. There's quite an interesting body of knowledge growing now that some of the genes that are associated with schizophrenia are associated with how cells migrate and move 
in the brain both during development and perhaps during adulthood. And we know that we continue to make new brain cells throughout life in certain parts of the brain now. So do you think that this is some kind of thing that you grow into? You slowly accumulate enough cells as your brain ages and produces new neurons that they make new pathways that perhaps connect up the wrong bits of the brain and, and disclose schizophrenia? The very name schizophrenia itself means a splitting of the mind. And while many lay people would interpret that as a split personality, what it actually means is that different faculties of the brain tend not to uh, integrate with each other. Functional brain imaging, which is what I use, which allows us to um, measure whole brain activity in association with a series of challenges and symptoms, that's seeming to suggest that some of the core abnormalities may be manifest not as a failure to be active, but as a failure of different regions to speak to each other. There's a neurologist who works in Switzerland called Olaf Blanke, who I talked to a few years ago, and he discovered when he was treating a lady for epilepsy that if he stimulated a certain part of the brain, he could produce this out-of-body experience in this lady, and she was effectively experiencing her own body, but the symptoms of kind of someone touching that body, she wasn't mapping onto it being her, she was thinking there was another person in the room with her. So do you think that there's a part of the brain which just doesn't work properly in schizophrenia, which would normally cancel out internally generated things, like voices and other kinds of things, and tell you they're coming from you, and that just doesn't work, so people think that there's something real? Yeah, there's good evidence that normally, when you or I hopefully um, speak to ourselves in our mind, we actually cancel out the auditory response to that. It's as though there's a dampening down. Whereas if we hear somebody else speaking, then our auditory cortex is very responsive and active. Now, the suggestion is that in hallucinations, it's treating internal speech as though it's external, and therefore you hear what you say as though it's somebody else, which would account for many of the phenomena of schizophrenia. And there is another very interesting symptom called a delusion of control, where somebody feels that their own movements are actually produced by somebody else. Now, again, the same explanation might hold for this. When I go to generate a movement, I know what to expect. I know that the outcome of that movement will result in me being in a different position or my hand being in a different position. Now, if I fail to make that prediction, then it may be that that comes as a surprise to me and I could then interpret it as somebody else having made the movement. So these are interesting speculations, and indeed there is growing evidence that this may be the case, and I think Olaf Blanke's work is, is very interesting in that respect. And finally, are we closer to helping people to lead some kind of normal life once they're diagnosed with something like schizophrenia? I think as we begin to understand the link between a chemical abnormality and a high-level expression of a symptom in terms of processes that are very specific like this, then we may be in a position to offer newly targeted therapies. An example of that is we're now finding that we can reproduce some of the symptoms of schizophrenia with a drug called ketamine, which has been widely used as an anaesthetic. Now, maybe if we can target the same receptors that ketamine works on, then we can begin to find new treatments, more acceptable treatments for schizophrenia. And in fact, only last year a paper came out suggesting that may well be the case. Well, thank you very much to Paul Fletcher, who is from the Department of Psychiatry and also a fellow of Clare College, which, as you told us earlier, Sarah, is the College of Bridges and Balls, and David Attenborough, which is obviously a lot to be proud of. But where are we now? Right, well, this on the right is Trinity Hall, and this was founded in 1350, and it was originally founded to train lawyers to replace all the ones that died in the Black Death a few years earlier. I wish they hadn't built it. Yeah, I don't know why they thought more lawyers were needed in the world, but, you know... Well, in one respect, they're absolutely right, but now they've taken over the world, haven't they? Yeah, they have a bit. They does still have a very strong law faculty within the college, but it's not as strong as it used to be. So have you got to be a sort of law geek to get in there then? 
Well, yeah, I suppose so, but I think you have to be a bit of a geek to get into most Cambridge colleges, really. Well, here's our next passenger. So welcome aboard Florian Holfelder. Do step into our punt. Come and have a seat. Florian's a fellow of Trinity Hall College and also from the Department of Biochemistry. You work on enzymes. Yes, enzymes make reactions fast and they're the ultimate green reagents. So some food additives have, have enzymes, washing powder consists of enzymes. And when you look at the chemistry, these chemistries are very, very complicated and difficult to do in the lab. But enzymes do it with great accelerations that are large. And the numbers are so large that they hardly mean anything. The accelerations there are 10 to the 21, for example. That's a 1 with 21 zeros behind it. That's how fast it makes a reaction go compared with if you didn't have the enzyme there. That's right, yeah. So if you look in the water, the reaction would be not occurring at all, even after millions of years. But when you put a bit of the washing powder in, then suddenly proteins get degraded very, very quickly. And that's an amazing chemical machine and actually so amazing that we understand only a very small fraction of it and we want to get further into the unknown. So what you're basically saying is we want to be able to capture and use these molecules in the laboratory and also in industry to do things in a much cleaner, faster way. It's more energetically favourable and you're out there looking to find out A, how these chemical reactions occur using enzymes in the first place and how we can find better ones. That's right, yeah. And the technical trick here is to be so good at, first of all, making a mess, and then being very accurate in finding one molecule out of billions of molecules that are useless. So do you mean, in other words, you, you're making different versions of an enzyme? When you say make a mess, you just make lots of different forms of it, and then you find the one which works best and, and then ask why? Exactly. We do it exactly like nature would do it. Nature is imperfect in replicating the genetic blueprint, the DNA. And we do that in the laboratory. We use a reaction to multiply DNA molecules that makes imperfect copies. And we hope that they go in the right direction and that the difference makes a difference. Oh, I see. So you make a difference or an error in the DNA which changes the, the protein, the enzyme, very, very subtly. And then you ask, has that difference translated into an enzyme that works better or worse? This is exactly what we do, yeah. So what sorts of reactions are you looking at? We're looking at hydrolytic reactions, reactions where water is a reagent because they're useful. They're useful in washing powders, in detoxification of pesticides and so on. And we have enzymes that are interesting because they do several things. They're generalists. They don't only do one thing very well, but they do several things very well. And in evolution, this might have been extremely useful because often you find in nature that genes get duplicated. And the best way of getting the new activity as soon as possible would be if the original enzyme had a small side activity. We call that catalytic promiscuity. If one enzyme doesn't only have one partner but several partners with whom it can engage and often these are different chemistries that it can do. And that's why these promiscuous enzymes are for us the starting point for evolution. You're more likely to recover one clone with a new activity if it already had a little bit of it originally. What sorts of things apart from washing powders are you looking at then? So for example we're uh, looking at phosphatases and some of the pesticides that have been put in nature in the 50s are very slowly degraded and so having hydrolases that break them down completely in a biocompatible way are useful for opening up um, brownfield sites again to nature. Have you got any enzymes that you've identified that, that do that job well now then? Yes, we found some enzymes that can be changed from one activity that is more or less useless to a more useful activity. Well, we're not quite at an industrial application, but we can show we can at least, because the tricks we've developed in the technology were very important. And what we've learned in the process of that is that, in principle, you want to start off with a jack-of-all-trades that can do everything 
just not very well, but it can do everything just a bit. And then you enhance that background activity to get better. If you start with something that is promiscuous, it interacts with everything, you have a much better chance to find a good clone, a good enzyme. When you say you make a mess and then find out how it works later, do you actually ever work the other way and then say, right, we've now got a really good enzyme that's improved dramatically. Now let's go and have a look at it and try and find out why. Yeah, so we then crystallise it. We wait for it to form well-defined materials, crystals, that you can diffract. And these are techniques that were developed in Cambridge in the 50s. And now it's fairly standard that even an amateur like me can, together with a good collaborator, can start making crystals. And that then gives us insight in the inner workings of the enzyme so we can pinpoint why we found it in the library in the first place. And that hopefully um, helps us to define a whole class of enzymes that are versatile. So in case you wanted um, an enzyme for a specific application, we now know where to start. I was going to say, because presumably the end point for this will be you'll understand so much about it that you can just say, either take one off the shelf that you've made earlier or you'll know exactly how to tweak something to add an activity that a certain chemical reaction or a certain ability to do something very well to, to an enzyme that already exists. Yes, that's right. And another thing that I think we haven't cracked quite yet is how nature can do it so efficiently because very often we find that protein structures are very delicate. They are a bit like a bundle of wool, but unlike the bundle of wool, if it's not quite in the right orientation, it'll just collapse and become non-functional. And one thing that you have to do when you mutate, when you make a mess of the enzymes a bit, is that you don't delete the activity that the proteins become what is appearing when you put milk into your cappuccino, the, the froth on top. That's actually a denatured enzyme, but it's not functional anymore. Now, we want to avoid that, and there are some tricks that we don't quite understand that you can affect on the structure of enzymes so that um, you avoid loss in your library. Some clones just denature, they disappear, and they're not selectable anymore. And, and there are some tricks now that you keep the structure quite constant, that you start with, with something that is resistant to temperature, and that has then enough degrees of freedom to find the, the, the new function. Do you think you might be able to invent an enzyme to stop punt sinking? Because I think we might be taking on water here. <laughs> I could probably make an enzyme that helps us to hydrolyze compounds that are toxic in the chem at some stage, or maybe an enzyme that helps us to... Bail out? <laughs> maybe, maybe. Thank you very much. Great to have you aboard. Great, thank you very much. Mind your step, don't fall in. Well, thank you very much to Florian Holfelder. He's from the Department of Biochemistry, and he's also a fellow of Trinity Hall College, and his work is looking at how you can make enzymes better so that we can get stains out of dirty shirts. Sorting out the sparks from the quarks, the naked scientists... This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and this week we're punting down the cam because we've taken to the river to visit some of Cambridge's foremost colleges and interview some of the people who work there, the dons or fellows. And our guide on this trip, the person pushing us down the river with a big long pump pole, is Sarah Cost-Perry. Sarah, where are we now? Well, what you can see on the right is the Wren Library, which is part of Trinity College. And this was designed by Sir Christopher Wren, who designed St Paul's Cathedral in London. And this holds some of the most famous work by Isaac Newton, who was a fellow of Trinity. And as you can see, the library's on the top floor, on the second floor. So if the river ever flooded, because it's right next to the river, the books wouldn't get all soggy. Which is kind of important, considering they must be irreplaceable. Well, they are, aren't they? Yes, definitely. Quite a lot of the books are over 200 years old, so definitely irreplaceable. What else is Trinity famous for? 
Well, it's the richest college in either Oxford or Cambridge. It was set up by Henry VIII in 1546, and he gave it a lot of land and property and money from the dissolution of the monasteries. And, in fact, some of the colleges in Cambridge that used to be monasteries were broken up and given to Trinity as land. And it used to be said that you could walk all the way from Cambridge to Oxford on land owned by Trinity... Although they are the richest college with assets of over £700 million, walking from Cambridge to Oxford is not actually possible on Trinity land. Here's our next passenger just coming down the bank towards us. It is Professor Martin Rees. Martin, welcome. Martin is the president of the Royal Society. He's also the master of Trinity College and he's the Astronomer Royal. And that means he's going to talk to us about life, the universe and everything. Martin, thank you very much for agreeing to talk to us. Well, it's great to be here on this sunny day. Let's put some numbers on things first of all. Actually how old is the universe? Well the universe is uh, nearly 14 billion 14,000 million years old and we know that number with a precision of about 5% I would guess Uh, the earth itself is about 4.5 billion years old and the first life started not much after that. So when we think about the origin of the sun and the planets, uh, we have to realise that when they formed, already the universe had been expanding for about 9 billion years. 5% pretty accurate. How do you know the universe is that old? We know the universe is expanding, and if we know how fast an object is moving away from us, and how far away it is, then we can work out, roughly speaking, how long it has taken to get to that distance, assuming everything started close packed together. But then you have to make corrections, because the uh, present speed is not the average speed, depending on whether the universe is accelerating or decelerating. But uh, that argument and some others have uh, given us this picture of how long it was since everything in the universe was squeezed together in a very hot, dense state, which we call the aftermath of the Big Bang. And how long did that go on for? Because the Big Bang obviously occurred in a fraction of a second, but then things have been evolving since. Well, the first microsecond is still shrouded in mystery because the conditions then were rather extreme. From then onwards, we do have a fairly good general picture of how the universe evolved. After one second, it would have been at a temperature of 10 billion degrees, and soon after that hydrogen and helium atoms or nuclei of the atoms formed and after about half a million years the uh, radiation left over from the early universe cooled to a temperature of about 3,000 degrees and that's important because that's a low enough temperature lower than the surface of a star where the atoms become neutral and they can start clustering together. So after about half a million years, the atoms start clustering together to make the first galaxies and the first stars. Do we know what the anatomy of those first galaxies was? Are they similar to what we see today or were they very different? Well, we don't quite know when the first stars and galaxies formed. We know that after the first half million years, the universe became literally dark because the primordial heat and light diluted and shifted into infrared. The universe became literally dark until the first stars formed and lit it up again. But we do believe that the first stars to form, not in isolation, but in what I would call sub-galaxies, objects which are maybe um, about a million times as big as a star, and that these sub-galaxies then um, agglomerated and merged together until systems the scale of present-day galaxies built up. What keeps galaxies together? Why don't they just spread out and all the matter and the material just gets dispersed through space evenly? Well, the galaxies are held together by gravity, but the gravity of the uh, stars and gas that we see 
is not enough to stop their disruption because we know how fast they're moving and therefore how much kinetic energy has to be uh, counterbalanced by gravity. And the important conclusion we draw from this is that galaxies must consist of not just gas and stars but also of some other ingredient, what we call dark matter. And this material is of some uncertain nature. It's probably some kind of particles made in the Big Bang along with the atoms and the radiation which are rather like heavy neutral atoms, as it were, and they don't emit or absorb light, but they feel gravity and they cluster together in a sort of swarm. And we believe that every galaxy contains not just stars and gas, but also a swarm of dark matter whose total mass is probably five times as big as the mass of all the stars and gas we see. If they were produced in the Big Bang and they like to cluster together, how did they get separated in the first place? only then to come back together again at the hearts of the galaxies we have today. The early universe was very smooth, almost uniform. If it had been completely uniform, then it would now, after 14 billion years, be just uh, cold, very dilute hydrogen, no galaxies, no stars and no people. But the early universe wasn't completely smooth. It had small fluctuations, some regions slightly denser than others, some expanding slightly slower than others. And during the expansion, the density contrasts grow under the action of gravity. That's because if a region is slightly denser than average, gravity exerts a bigger pull and slows it down more. So density contrast grows. So starting from very tiny non-uniformities one part in 100,000 or thereabouts, one can end up in the theoretical simulations of galaxy formation with structures forming at a late stage in the universe. And we believe that's what happened, that there were these fluctuations, one part in 100,000 from place to place, and as the universe expanded, the density contrast grew, and the dense regions eventually separated out to make the first galaxies. Dark matter, which is intensely gravitationally positive and pulls things towards itself, Mm. explains one aspect of what you've been saying. One other thing that you mentioned was that the universe is expanding. So if you've got everything pulling together, what's driving the opposite effect? What's pushing everything apart to make it expand? Even now, if you look at the uh, um, expansion of the universe, it seems that it is uh, speeding up, not slowing down. This is rather surprising, because you would expect that the gravitational pull that everything exerts and everything else would cause the expansion to slow down. But it does seem that there is in the universe now, to everyone's surprise, an extra force which... uh, is unimportant on the scale of um, everyday life, unimportant in the solar system, even in the galaxy. But on the scale of the entire universe, it exerts a push which overwhelms the pull of gravity and causes the expansion to be accelerating. And so this tells us a long-range forecast for the universe is to become ever colder, ever emptier, ever more dilute. But we suspect also, though we don't know this, that in the early stage of the universe there was a repulsive force rather like the one operating now, but much, much stronger. And that gave the universe its initial impetus, as it were. And looking at the shorter range closer to home, in, in our own cosmic neighbourhood, this galaxy, the Milky Way, does that mean the space between us and our next near neighbours is getting bigger too? No, there's a, what we call a local group of galaxies, which is us plus Andromeda plus a few smaller galaxies, which is uh, a system held together by its own gravity. That's not participating in the expansion of the universe. So if we imagine what the universe would be like, say, 50 billion years from now, then it'll look very empty indeed, and almost everything that we now see with our telescopes will have disappeared. What will be left will be just the uh, remnants of our galaxy, Andromeda and a few others, which will by then have merged together into a large amorphous galaxy consisting of uh, dark matter 
and stars which will then mainly have died except the very faint slow-burning ones. Martin, thank you ever so much for joining us on our pun today. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much to Martin Rees from Trinity College. Take care on the bank there, Martin. Now, Sarah, we are now heading under an arch. Where are we? Right, well, this is known as the Bridge of Size. It's at St John's College. It's modelled on the Bridge of Size in Venice, although, as anyone who has seen the Venetian one would know, it doesn't actually look very much like it, apart from the fact that it's got high sides and a roof. Um, But St John's is the only college in Cambridge that has two bridges over the river, and the Bridge of Size is one of them, and then you can just about see the other one next to it as well. It's a beautiful bridge. Yeah, it's a really beautiful piece of architecture. It's one of the famous things that tourists come to see. And uh, why is St John's also well known? Well, fellows of John's College are the only people, apart from the royal family, who can legally eat swans in the UK. Why? I don't know. It's a special relationship between the royal family and St John's College, I assume. But they're only allowed to eat them on one particular day of the year. So they can't eat them all the time like the Queen can. Oh, lucky them. Uh, So where do they get these swans? Off of the river? Well, they probably did in olden times. They've got a swan trap, which is a sort of corridor that leads from the river off into a wall. So the swans would swim in, and then it would get narrower and narrower, and they would get stuck, and then they would catch them. But there aren't really that many swans on the river now, so I don't think it's used. There's plenty of geese, though. And even if we get really desperate, there are some tourists, I suppose, we could eat. Yeah, I suppose if we get hungry. Although luring them into a swan trap might be a bit difficult. Welcome back to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith. This week, we're exploring Cambridge by water because we're punting our way down the River Cam and exploring some of the colleges that are on the banks of the river. Who do I see on the horizon? It's Ben and Dave. Ahoy there. Hello. (laughs) Hello. You're camping out in the grounds of St John's College. What are you up to? Well, we thought we'd enjoy the summer weather and uh, by the river is a lovely place to be, so we've set up our tent and uh, we're just going to enjoy the sunshine. Are you going to come aboard? Yeah, why not? Dave manoeuvres 15 tonnes of campcraft gear. What are you going to do? Well, we're going to show you a way of making a fire just using the power of the sun. Ben, do you know he's going to do this in a punt? It's, it's made of wood, Dave. You might survive the experience, Chris, if you're lucky. <laughs> well, we do need a way to cook our lunch, and I haven't brought any matches, and neither has Dave, so we certainly needed to find a different way of starting a fire. So what we thought we'd do is we'd try to start this fire using a magnifying glass. And so Dave has brought along the biggest magnifying glass I have ever seen. <laughs> it's huge! He has got a magnifying glass bigger than my head. What's going to happen when you focus that with the sun? Well, a magnifying glass is a lens, and lenses are designed specially to focus all the light from one point on one side to one point on the other. A magnifying glass is made out of glass, and glass slows light down a bit when it hits it. So when light hits it at an angle, the light will bend slightly, and a lens is very cleverly shaped. So if we've got the sun on one side, we can focus all the light from the sun into a small image of the sun on the other side. And is there really enough energy from the sun hitting the Earth, even only in this diameter, to be able to concentrate that and start a fire? On the equator, you get about a kilowatt of energy from the sun in every square metre. So on the six-inch magnifying glass, focus down to a couple of millimetres, there's plenty there to heat something up to several hundred degrees centigrade. And a kilowatt is like a one-bar electric fire, isn't it? So it's very, very hot. That's right, yes. Well, we have a frying pan, and uh, I've mixed up some eggs for an omelette, but Dave, I think you'd better get the fire started. OK, I've got a piece of paper here. It works best if the paper's black. Um, So I'm going to scrump it up and get a nice ball of paper 
I'm trying to get the black bits on the outside so I can focus the light onto them. The white paper reflects most of the light that hits it, so you'd have to focus much more light onto it to get the same effect. So I've taken this crumpled up ball of paper. I'm going to put it on a tray in order to reduce the fire risk in this punt. So I'm now going to take the lens. So I'm focusing the sun's light. At the moment it's not very good focus. I'm just going to lift the lens up gently. It's now getting too bright for me to actually look at. That's actually hurting my eyes. And it is definitely starting to smoke. Dave's about two and a half foot away with the lens now. And it's really... <coughs> it's certainly getting lit. There's a very smoky smell in the punt. And it's definitely starting to burn now. It's burnt through several layers of the paper. I think someone has actually called the Coast Guard or something because there's an aeroplane, a fire spotter plane up there. <laughs> They've heard about Dave's experiment. <coughs> so we do now have what can only be described as a fire in a tin uh, lit by only a magnifying glass. Aboard a wooden punt. <laughs> so, Dave, you were about two and a half foot away there with the, with the magnifying glass. Do you, you have to be a certain distance away to concentrate the light? That's right. A uh, lens will only work if you're actually at the focal length of the lens. If you're too close, instead of getting a nice small spot, you get a big blurred round spot, so it won't get as hot. I know that in sunlight you get lots of different wavelengths of light, lots of different frequencies, and infrared is commonly what we think of as the way of transmitting heat. So are we actually concentrating the infrared on this, or is it just the light itself that does that work? Well, it's actually both of them. Glass will focus various frequencies of infrared, especially ones closest to visible light, but probably not the thermal infrared, which we glow in being at normal sort of room temperature. So is there any way that we can concentrate and move about the thermal infrared? I've got a really nice experiment inside which I can show you which does just that. OK, well, I shall put this fire out. Our omelette will have to wait and we'll go inside and try the second part of this experiment. We've brought you in here, Ben, to show you this. That's just a satellite dish, isn't it, Dave? It's a particularly shiny satellite dish. In fact, it's exactly the same shape as a satellite dish. It's a parabolic mirror. Well, I can't see myself in it, so it obviously doesn't make a very good mirror. But what's it for? A parabolic mirror is actually exactly the right shape like a lens, to focus light to a point. But this time, we're not going to be focusing visible light like we were before. We're going to be focusing invisible infrared light. So shall we take this back outside by the river and use it to focus the light from the sun? We could do. In fact, many people have tried this. It's a good idea for the developing world, because what they've done is taken parabolic mirrors like this and put something you want to cook at the focus of the parabolic mirror. This is a few centimetres away from the back of it. And then all the light is concentrated down onto this. If you put some food in, the food will heat up and you can cook it. But if we're not taking it out into the sun, then what light is it that we are going to condense? What I'm going to do is I'm going to heat up an old pan scarer at about the focus of this mirror, and that's going to get very hot and start emitting lots of infrared light. Because this is at the focus, instead of focusing it to another point further away, it'll focus it into a beam a bit like a searchlight. So actually you can reverse the trick, and instead of using the parabolic mirror to collect all of the light onto its focus point, if you put something really hot at its focus point, then it will shine that heat back out. Yes, and in fact, if you put something very bright at the focus of this, it'll reflect all the light into a narrow beam, just like a searchlight or the headlight of a car. OK, cool. Well, can I see it working? OK, if you go and stand a few feet over that way, I'll light it up and see what you can feel. OK, well, I trust you. I shall, uh, I'll go and stand facing the parabolic mirror. OK, now I'm going to light a couple of blowtorches and use them to heat up a pan scour, which is at the focus of this mirror. Well, I'm about five metres away from your parabolic mirror, Dave, and I can see from here clearly that the old scourer you've got is glowing red hot, but it feels really hot over here. It feels like sitting in front 
a, a one-bar electric fire. It really does. And the other strange thing is that the sound of the blowtorch is really loud over here. Why is that so loud? Well, sound is focused by a parabolic mirror as well, so you're getting a beam of sound from this blowtorch pointing towards you along with a beam of heat. Well, I'm getting a bit too hot here now, Dave, so, um, so I'll, I'll move away if that's OK. Yeah, that's fine, Ben. Now, you may think that you got quite hot then. I'm going to get something really hot now. What I've got here is another parabolic mirror, which I can use to focus that beam of heat right back down to a point. Well, that just sounds dangerous. That may sound dangerous, but it's not as dangerous until you hear what I'm actually going to put at this point. I've got some nitrocellulose here, which is also known as gun cotton. It's an explosive, and I'm going to put that at the focus of the second mirror. So we're creating a lot of heat at the focal point of the first mirror, and that makes it send that heat in a beam forward like a searchlight. But then you're going to catch all of that heat again and focus it down onto a pile of explosives. Yeah, that's pretty much the plan. Sounds good to me. Let's do it. I'll just turn this Bunsen off, because I really don't want that gun cotton going off in my hand. OK, here's the other parabolic mirror. I'll just put it down here. I'll just crouch down behind it so I can align it nicely. So the two parabolic mirrors have to be perfectly aligned? Yeah, that's right. The focus point won't be at the centre where I've got the explosive. And now it's aligned, I'll just get some gun cotton and put it at the focus of the second mirror. Now you've got about a handful of gun cotton there. I've never handled the stuff before. Is, is that a lot? Is this going to be a big explosion? Should I be outside again? Big enough, but shouldn't be dangerous. I'll have to trust you on that. So now do we have to heat the scourer up again? Yeah, that's the plan. I'll light the two Bunsons and heat up the scourer. I'll get out of the way. Wow! <laughs> that really went up in a flash. Yeah, it went off with a flash. That's why it's known as flash cotton. The light was being focused by the two parabolic mirrors down to a point and along with much more heat than there was light. So the gun cotton got above its ignition temperature, it ignited and went off with a bang. Well, these parabolic mirrors are obviously an excellent way of sending heat around. How far can you actually send it? Well, with my kit, you probably get it 10, 15 metres if you line them very carefully. With perfect mirrors, probably several hundred metres, you could get exactly the same effect, but you'd have to align them incredibly carefully. But it depends on exactly the frequency of the light you're trying to focus. In fact, the satellite dishes use exactly the same principle to focus microwaves from a satellite thousands of miles up in the atmosphere onto a receiver, so the receiver gets much more signal than it would do otherwise. And you can watch satellite TV. Oh, so that's how they work. And if there's one other thing that these parabolic mirrors do look like, they actually look like a really big wok, which reminds me, we were going to make an omelette. So we better get back to the river and I'll hand you back to Chris. Terrific. Thank you very much to Ben and to Dave for an amazing kitchen science experiment. Kitchen science camp style. Got themselves a conflagration going in a wooden boat. Always a good idea. Thanks, guys. In the meantime, I think you better get your tent down outside St John's College pretty quick before someone catches you. Well, that's it for this week's Naked Scientists, where we were drifting down the cam, courtesy of Sarah Castor-Perry and her punt. So thank you, Sarah, for telling us the story of all the colleges we visited as we went along. You're very welcome. I also have to say a very big thank you to the people who were our passengers today. Beverly Glover, Herbert Huppert, Paul Fletcher, Florian Holfelder and Martin Rees. The production was by Mira Senthalingam. Now, just before we go, I do have one more favour to ask you, but this is good because you could win some stuff. We're giving away the first Naked Scientist T-shirt without a new logo on it and also a copy of Crisp Packet Fireworks, our new book based on all the fun and funky experiments we do in kitchen science. 
and we're also giving away 10 runner-up prizes of Crisp Packet Fireworks, our new book. And it's very simple. All you have to do is fill in a copy of the Naked Scientist's online survey. This is just our feedback survey so that you can tell us what you think of our programme and our website. You can tell us what you think we're doing well and what you think we could be doing even better. So that's at nakedscientist.com forward slash survey. Do please fill it in. It'll only take a maximum of five minutes. Nakedscientist.com forward slash survey. Meanwhile, from the banks of the cam, that is it for this week. We're back at the same time next week with more Naked Science. So if you'd like to ask us any questions in the meantime, just send them to chris at thenakedscientist.com. Good to have your company. See you soon and goodbye. The Naked Scientists are sponsored by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information... Look us up online at nakedscientists.com. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.